our kids. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 20. Let's pray, and then we'll look at a few of these commands. Father, thank you for time in the Word. We praise you for camp. We thank you for the safety, not only from viruses, but safety in travel and vehicles not breaking down and so forth. Lord, you were very kind to us, and we felt your kindness, Lord. Thank you for the saints that were home here praying for us and and ministering and keeping ministry going here, Lord. Uh, All of this is by your grace and by your mercy, and we praise you for it, Lord. Now, Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would strengthen our hearts. May we love you more after studying your word than we did when we started, Lord. That's our goal, love you and serve you and worship you more. So grant us that tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we started into the Ten Commandments a couple of weeks ago. And, um, of course, I've you know, been teaching for years and years. I've taught through the Ten Commandments. But it's so fun to come fresh at the Word of God and start to think about these things. And, and so the scene is a beautiful scene. You remember this in Exodus chapter 19. The nation now has made their way to the foot of Sinai. They have fenced it off at the bottom of it. God says, do not let them come close to me. Hold them off at the base right there. And just amazing things are happening up on the mountain Um, really it's a theophany God is appearing there he's on top of the mountain but that's not the ultimate revelation that's not what God is there for but clearly his power is shown his majesty and holiness is clearly shown his lightning and clouds and, and, and man can't get close to him all of that's going on but that is secondary to what he's about to do what God is about to do is give them his word The most powerful thing that God could ever do for someone is give him his word. His word leads to salvation through the knowledge of who he is and what he's accomplished. And so here he is now communicating with his people through the word of God and how, particularly, how they can have fellowship with him. How fallen man, sinful man, the creation, the highest of God's creation, can now have fellowship with God. Remember we talked about this, and I want to hit this again because this is such an important thing. When we look at the commandments and even the law of God as new covenant Christians in the church age, we still realize that the law was given to fence us, in a sense, fence us towards God. And if you can picture that, that that these commandments and the word of God in general, um, but here in these commandments, they're there to direct us towards God. On the other side of the fence, there's all kinds of problems. You jump over that and you're gonna have problems, I promise you. You commit adultery, all kinds of problems. You cheat, steal, murder, all kinds of problems, right? So God has, in a sense, fencing us in his kindness towards him so we can have a relationship with him. Too many people look at the law and they go, oh, there's God and it's cold law. Oh, brothers and sisters, those of us who know Jesus Christ, who, by the way, fulfilled the law for us, realize that God sets these commandments so we'll know him, so we can fellowship with him, we can enjoy him to the highest. One of the reasons people don't enjoy God is because they enjoy sin more. So God is now distorted in their view. You want to have a distorted view of God? Live in sin. Pick your sin, doesn't matter. You will distort the view of God. So God's trying to help us here, right? He's trying to direct us just as he was doing with the nation. But look, the essence of the law, the center of the law is love. And we know that because Jesus said, what is the greatest command? 
What's the greatest commandment? He, and they answered, right? To love the Lord your God with all your strength, all your soul, your might, your strength, and so forth, and your neighbor as yourself. So the essence, the heart of the law, is the love of God. And that's displayed in, in, a, in a God who loves us so much, who doesn't want us to get wayward in our direction towards him and weighed down by sin. Now, when we think about kings, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, they always set up rules. How you could approach the king, when you could come to the king. Remember Esther, if the scepter doesn't go forward, you die. <laughs> scepter goes forward, you can come talk to me. They always had rules. Problem with the king's rules, earthly king's rules, is they didn't even live up to them. And they couldn't, because they were sinners themselves. But here, the king of kings, uh, God, Yahweh, the God of creation, this is the one who can not only establish the law, but keep it because it's a product of him. It's a reflection of his character, his nature. And so we have this living God now setting down rules of conduct, how to be able to come to him, which mirror his perfect, his perfect character. So the law teaches us the character of God. So four things that we learned when we talked about this last time. Number one, first and foremost, we look at the Ten Commandments as a reflection of God's perfect character. You have to look at it and say, wow, that's a holy and sinless God. I want to I know him. I want to know who he is. How do I get to him? Second, we see that the law being only fulfilled through Jesus Christ, but done on our behalf. Now, there's some wording there I want you to get. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the law. He didn't come to abolish it, right? Matthew chapter 5, 17, 19, somewhere right there. Um, he did not come to abolish it, but he came to fulfill it. Now, listen to the last phrase of what I just said, on your behalf. So every believer in the room, you need to understand, if you're a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of the law, all the Ten Commandments and the hundreds of other rules and laws that came with it, were all completed in your stead. Now when God looks at us, he looks at us in son as those who are able to complete the law but only through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thought. And I know I've broken that law many, many times, haven't you? But yet in Christ, that law is fulfilled through Jesus Christ who is in me. Third, we said that we see the Ten Commandments given to man so he can enjoy the presence and fellowship of God. That goes back to this idea of him fencing us towards himself. When we look at the law of God, now don't just think 10 commandments only, but think about the beautiful commandments all through the Bible, to love your neighbor, to love your wife, to, to submit to your husband, to obey your parents, all these laws that are all through the Bible, to, to um, have a wholesome speech, all of these things that we see through the Bible, they're all given so you will enjoy God. You'll enjoy his presence. You will not run from God. You will not fear God in a worldly sense. You have an awe and respect for him. We have to remember that as we study the Ten Commandments. And then fourth, we said that the Ten Commandments reveal in the New Covenant, they're revealed in the New Covenant and they're obeyed by those who love the Savior. And that's what we've been doing. Every commandment we look at, then we go look at the New Covenant and we see how they're fulfilled there and how that helps us as New Covenant Christians uh, to fulfill those things. Well, first we looked at, in verse 1, that God was speaking. He was the voice of God and his credentials here. Notice in verse 1 it said, then, then God spoke all these words. And so here's this living God who up to this point had only spoken through Moses. Now he's speaking to the people. 
In fact, you'll see as we get done with the Ten Commandments on the other side of it, the narrative picks up and they go, uh, Moses, <laughs> we don't want to talk to him anymore. You can talk to us. They, they were frightened of God. But God is speaking and his voice is present and the nation can hear him. He says there in verse two, I'm the Lord your God. I'm Yahweh. I'm the same one that destroyed Egypt, that killed the firstborn of the Egyptians who rejected the blood all, he's, he's declaring who he is. He wants them to understand who is speaking. And that reflects this magnificent person of God. And then he reminds them what he did, who brought you up out of Egypt. Notice that in verse 2. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of slavery. And, and just a, a quick application here. Um, that is so true for all, all of us as believers. Every one of us in here that's a born-again believer, meaning God has saved us through the Lord Jesus Christ, granted us faith so we'd repent of our sins and follow him. We all know we were slaves before this. We were slaves to sin. Our flesh had complete control of us. No matter, how, no matter what our moral upbringing would do, the flesh still had control of us. And so we were slaves to that. So, but here it's actually physically, I brought you out of slavery and it's a spiritual picture of what God does to all of his people. He brings us out of slavery, out of another land and brings us into his land. So that's a condensed summary of God's great acts of past, and and it also serves as a historical prologue of what's to follow. This is where God is going. Then we looked at the first commandment, and and what a great commandment this was, verse three. Uh, You shall have no other gods before you. Uh, We as Christians, if you're a Christian in this room, you believe that. There is no other God, and there should be no other gods before you him. And this first commandment teaches us that no deity real or imagined and certainly he is the only God, is to rival the true living God. Nothing should come before him. And notice he says, before me. And so there's a sense of his presence with us. He is with us. And so he wants no rival to him. In fact, their silliness to even think that there is a there is a rival. You've got to remember they're in a polytheistic world. There's still a polytheistic world. You get overseas, you travel overseas and come with me sometime to India or somewhere along the line where we're training pastors and you'll see a very polytheistic world. Many, many gods. But here he is saying, not Israel, not in my presence. I am your God alone. Have no other gods before me. And so we begin to realize that when he speaks that his presence is there, he does not want something, we'll see this in the next command, something that represents him. Uh, Isaiah chapter 66, verse one, we read this verse, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Then he asks this question, God speaking here, where then is a house you could build for me? (laughs) And where is a place that I may rest? So uh, there is, there's no pagan palaces of Christianity. We don't worship this building. This building could be taken by us in a number of years from the government because we don't comply with what they want. That could happen very easily. Or the Lord could burn it down tomorrow. It's not something we worship. And, and God, yes, is with us. The Spirit of God gathers. When we gather, he gathers with us. But yet he is in every one of us as believers. He resides with us. And so here, um, these commandments start to address not just nationalistic Israel, they're addressing each person. And we noted that, particularly in the Hebrew language, it has a singular forms of pronouns. 
you, you are not to have other gods. Not plural, you, 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 me, us. We are not to have other gods before him. And, and we talked about this in, in today's world in the New Testament age. Christ is God. He is, the, he is the one who has shown the full glory of God to us. And so he's our all in all, and there's no rival to Christ in our life. And we have to be careful of that, don't we, Christians? Money wants to sneak in, right? Finances, pleasure, things that we think that we think God should do. We let those things press in on us sometimes, and sometimes we allow little idols to get into our heart. But we are to love the Lord with all our heart, our soul, our strength, and our might. And, and, we, and we finished, really, with this command. We tiptoed into the next one, but we said, where are the idols in our life? Where are they? What's an idol in your life? Don't say it out loud. You can if you want, but, um, but think about it. Where, where, what's an idol? What is that thing or things or whatever it may be that kind of pushes its way before God in your life? When push comes to shove, when things are tight, when you're frustrated, um, when you look across the fence and see something somebody has greater than yours or your desires for something or to have something and life would not be complete if you did not have it and your whole life is consumed with this, what are those idols? And we, might, we gotta be careful of that and we need to repent of those things when they come and I think we all have them. Um, Several great preachers down through the years have said there's a battle for the throne of your heart. It's a battle for the throne of your heart. Who's gonna sit on it? Well, let's look at the second commandment. We started in on this one just a little bit. And I think this is just a fascinating thing to study. Look at verse four through six. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity of the fathers on children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now here we, we briefly got into this last time, but this word idol is a is generally referred to some kind of graven image. And I think the King James, some of those older translations actually translate it that way, a graven image. Um, and, and, and yet, in this day and age of Moses' time, and again, these still are here, uh, some of the first places that I, I went as I began to train pastors years ago, one of them was India. And that was the first time I'd really seen true idolistic worship. People cutting themselves before stone images, screaming out in the top of their lungs, begging for this piece of rock to do something for them. And so it's very much alive today. We not see it in our culture here because America has a Judeo-Christian type of base to it. We think it still has it. We're wondering about that. But yet that has allowed our culture here not to see that open idolatry. Now we have a very hidden idolatry, don't we? But look, what he's saying is you're going to look around all these nations that are around you. Hittites, Canaanites, Prezerites, Amalekites, all the ites. They're all bound down before something. They all have these idols and the Lord does not want anything like that. Now, I don't think that's exactly what this commandment's talking about though. <laughs> Here's what I think it is the key to it. God does not want any created thing to represent him. 
What would you build? What would you carve? What would you make to, to identify that with a living God? Pick your favorite animal. Wrong. <laughs> Everything is wrong when it comes to that. God is defined by himself alone. I am God. Well, what are you? Well, the Bible says in Isaiah 40, 18, to whom will you liken me? What kind of image do you think your engravers over there can come up with to, to make you think it's me? There's nothing like me. He says, or what likeness will you compare me to? John 4, 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. We certainly believe God is here today. He's here in every believer's life. He, he dwells us at the time of salvation in his spirit. He resides with us. But he's here. He's gathered with us. But he's worshiped in spirit. And so there's no way to draw a figure of him or chisel a figure of him of any way. And anything we would ever attempt or your imagination could ever come up with, fully sinful too, right, would be wrong in any way. So God says, do not try to construct something of my likeness. Now, there are a legitimate likeness to God. Look at the person next to you. Now, we are not gods, but the Bible says in Genesis 1.26, in his great triune statement, let us make man in our image. And so we're image bearers to him in certain ways. Man's created in the image of God after his likeness. But look, we are fallen. So even when you look at man, you would never want to engrave, what man would you want to pick out and say, well, let's make him the image of God? Anybody got an idea? I mean, <laughs> everyone would fall short, right? So what did God do? How would we ever know him? How would we have this personal relationship? Well, he sent his son, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate representation. In fact, Hebrews chapter one says he's the exact representation of God. I, I was teaching on Hebrews with the kids and I was in this passage and I went and grabbed my phone and put on the camera and I put it in somebody's face. I don't remember who it was. I said, who's in there? They said, well, that's me. I said, that's what Jesus is. He's the exact representation of God. That's what Hebrews 1 does such a good job with. You remember when the disciples were still wrestling with the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ just the night before his death. Philip says, Lord, Lord, you know, when are you going to show us the Father? And, and man, that was a hard conversation. These guys did not get it yet who they were with. He calmed seas. He fed, he fed thousands. He, he brought people back from the dead. He made the blind see, the deaf hear. I mean, it was, it's unbelievable what he did. I mean, no, it isn't. It is believable because the Bible says it, but we, when are you going to show us the Father? And Jesus says, you've been with me so long, how can you say? I mean, it's a great question. How can you even let those words fall from your mouth? Show me the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Thank you. A little slow there today. You've seen the Father. John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen the Father at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's some real interesting terminology there, but gives the idea that the Son comes right forth from the Father. <laughs> he is the Father. He's come forth from the Father. They share the nature of God together. 
And this is why we wrestle with the Trinity so much, because go, oh man, that's a hard one to get your mind around. Three distinct persons, all one God. And he is the essence of the Father. And so why would you ever try to make an engraven image? Some people said, well, is it okay to have a picture of Jesus in your home? Now, there's a lot of talk on that. Jesus was a, uh, uh, from a, uh, an Arabic descent of some sort. You know, he came down through the line of the Shemites and came through the line of David. You would have a, a kind of a pretty good idea of what that would have looked like. Um, I don't think um, too many Christians bow down to pictures of Jesus maybe or even the Last, the last Supper, um, that, that beautiful painting. But look, what the Bible's trying to tell us here is do not in any way try to do better than Jesus. <laughs> you say, well, I, I think I can. Well, we need to have a long talk. Look at verse five. You shall not worship them nor serve them for I, for I the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting iniquity of the, fa- of the father on the children on the fourth, third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, in the days and years to come for Israel, they would fall into temptation, like so many today, to be like the world around them, right? It's one of those great themes that we work on at camp with our, with our children there. There's such strong temptation to be like the world. And they are here being warned. They're being warned ahead of time. And God is telling Israel that the true worship of God does not require idols, does not require anything that could ever resemble him because nothing can. Now he gives them a tabernacle system because it's a picture of a heavenly home in a sense down on earth so they can start to understand his holiness and his greatness. And so it it was built to keep them out from his presence but to know he was there with them. And and yet what they do even by the time of Jesus as they worshiped that great temple, didn't they? And so God tells them not to bow down to anything. Don't bow down to anything. It disregards the covenant that I have with you. Now, now notice that he uses the word jealous. Isn't this interesting? He reminds them that he is a righteously jealous God. Now, the word jealous is often used in a as, a, as an unworthy attribute today, wouldn't you? We would say, you know, if someone was jealous of somebody else or their car or the, a person they liked or something, that we'd say that's not good, right? But not this word in the way it's used. And, and the reason is because here, this view of the word jealousy is not through the eyes of fallen humanity, but here God's word tells us that jealousy from God is a fundamental truth. You could list it in his attributes if you wanted to. He's a jealous God. And here's a definition. I looked at this in a lot of different ways, so I ended up writing the definition. The word means to focus, that God focuses on what has a right, what he has a right to, and it's an intense, he has an intense preoccupation to take action to guard and keep that relationship unaltered. That's pretty powerful. He's got a preoccupation with keeping our relationship with him unaltered. He doesn't want things between him and us. Remember they talked about these, the word of God, the law of God is directing us to him. And he's a jealous God when it comes to that. 
So this means God is committed to maintaining our relationship with him. He's committed to that. He's committed to his people. But look, he will deal with all threats that threaten the integrity of that relationship. And that's what he's saying in this verse. And certainly, this would speak about Israel's enemies. You mess with my people, you mess with me. And we saw him do that, right? We watched that in the Old Testament before they go south themselves. But here it describes this relationship with the heart of Israel. You're my God. I'm your God, you're my people. I am jealous for you. I will not share you with someone else. Isn't that such a good point? Maybe a good question to ask ourselves, to be honest tonight. Am I sharing my love with God with something else? Is something else starting to try to rob that love for God? And I think that's where conviction comes. That's where repentance comes in a believer's life. Lord, cause me to come to repentance. What's pulling away my love for you? What's causing me to justify sin in my life? What's causing me to dabble with things that I know you don't want me to do? I I sense the Spirit grieving with that. He's a jealous God. Notice it says to the third and fourth generation, isn't that an interesting comment? Israel commits adultery against Yahweh. If if they're going to do that, the Lord says this, look, I'm going to act. I'm going to maintain the integrity of our relationship, at least from me to you, and I will punish nationally and generationally. And you you go, well, Scott, is that fair? And I have many people come to me and say, "This, this shows that God is unjust and he doesn't consider man. And well, wait a minute, let's think about this. Someone may ask you, say, well, why, why would he do that to these innocent children? Uh-oh. <laughs> that, that's not a correct statement, is it? Man goes astray from the womb. David says he was conceived in sin. We're, we're born in depravity. So there are no innocent people. Let's make sure we understand the fundamental truth of depravity right from the get-go. I, I know, look, I finally have a grandchild, and... <laughs> It's hard to see that little sinner. I mean, I, we were FaceTiming him Sunday night, which is our great night. We do every, Oh, my goodness. You just want to reach to that screen and hold that little guy. But I remind myself, oh, Lord, save little Ollie. He needs salvation. Please get him early. See, we are fundamentally fallen. Now, how would we answer this? Well, the answer lies in the fact that one generation does not, I want you to listen to this, this it's so true today, one generation does not live solely for itself, but it sets the agenda and the moral stability of the future. Is it resonating with anybody in this room right now, what we're going through? And you say, well, well, how does that work? Well, if any iniquity or sin here goes unrepented of, and it, it seems to want to pass its way down. Now think about what he's writing to the context. Here, families would live together. A head of a house would have several, maybe several generations living with them. Uh, it wasn't too often where someone would get married that they would not leave. The house would just get another room put on it and that family members would move in with them. It was often the way the Hebrews worked in a lot of the world during this time. Now, the oldest generation would establish the lifestyle in that home. Dad's running the home. The wife is submitting to him. Children are obeying him. Dad is leading that home. 
Now, if iniquity and sin goes unrepentant from the head of the home, he does not turn from that sin, and in most cases, it becomes prevalent direction of that home. If dad did it, it's okay. Now, I said most cases. By the grace of God, there's probably many of us in here that we are first-generation followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You may not have had family that was committed to Christ. Maybe they went to church or something, but they were not committed to Christ. And so what God does is he establishes home. This is why the New Testament talks so strongly to men. Men, you represent the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the head over the church. You reflect that. When we don't, we teach generational sin. When dad never repents of sin, never says, I am sorry, sons, daughters. What your dad did was godless. Will you forgive me? That sin will begin to repeat over and over and over and often, in most cases, pass to the next generation until God, by his graciousness, breaks the heart of one of those siblings or children, descendants from that home, and he turns to the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, Scott, how do you know this? Well, look at Judges with me. I can give you a passage that I want you to get your little finger on and see. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Judges chapter 2. Nation has now been granted the promised land. Moses dies. Joshua leads them in. They begin to sweep through the promised land. God is giving them victory after victory after victory. The nation for years, you have to realize how many years are in the book of Joshua. They're they're serving the Lord. They're obeying the commandments. They're, They're fenced in and pleasing God with the things that they need to do. But Judges chapter two, verse 10, shows a very different story that begins to take place. And I want to just read this because I really want to challenge men in here. Our elders have been praying that God would raise godly men up. You know what, before I say that, I want to praise the Lord for something. We've been praying that God would raise godly young men up and we are starting to see that in this church. There are young men now embracing Christ and running after him. We've had a, I think we've had a, a good group of young godly ladies at our church but we've been missing the men and he's doing that and I'll tell you how that happens to lose men is this passage right here Judges chapter 2 verse 10 all that generation also was gathered to their fathers so there's these generations living for God following him and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord that doesn't mean they didn't know there was a God they didn't care to know him Life became more important to gain stuff. And so now, now the nation's starting to fall into some trouble. Nor yet, uh, nor yet the work which they had done for Israel, that he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So if you don't recognize God, you don't know God, guess what comes next? Sinful behavior. And they served Baal. And they forsook the Lord and the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed themselves down 
Thus they provoked the Lord to anger, so they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtoreth, and the angers of the Lord, anger, anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of the plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemy around them, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. And whenever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken, and as the Lord had sworn to them, so that they were severely distressed. What a statement. And this is what happens, and this is what God is warning. Remember, I'm fencing you in. I'm trying to bring you to me. I want to keep you close to me. Obey these laws. Obey this love law that I'm giving to you so you don't fall and, and cause generational sin that begins to happen over and over and over. And before you're too discouraged in here, please know that any moment, no matter what your parents were like, if you bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, all that trend can be broken. He is a gracious God, and many of us here stand here as witnesses to God doing that in our lives. He breaks that terrible chain of, of hard hearts. And of course, it's only by the divine intervention of God's grace that the legacy of sin can be overturned. And otherwise, this succeeding generation just gets worse and worse. And pretty soon, we're a church of old people. And we have no youth. We have no camps. We don't have kids down the hall. We don't have children being cared for. None of that's happening because all that's left is a few old people hanging on to some truths. But that's not the case here. We're going to fight to keep Christ in the center of all we do, brothers and sisters. There's nobody in this nation going to teach what the church teaches. We are the hope of all. We carry that message of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the light on the hill, not a country. It is Christ who is the light on the hill. Do not put a bushel on him or we will suffer it. And look, I know some of us are sitting there thinking, wow, God, there were stretches in my life where I did not exalt you and I can see possibly some of that in my children's life. Well, God's also a very loving, gracious, and forgiving God. And I would challenge any of us, older or younger in here, that if you failed in a way, make sure you're right with God. He forgives. And make sure you're right with all people as far as it concerns with you. There's times that us fathers have to go to our children and say, will you forgive me? I failed to be the example that God wanted me to be. And I, I put other things before God. I broke his commandments and I got outside that direction that he wanted for me and I distorted to you who God is. That might need to be talked down. They may throw milk in your face and walk away. But you do what is right, and, and you strive to love that person. Look, it's no accident that the language used here is about family. When you look at this, this is about family. It's fathers and children and generations, isn't it? It's no accident here. And it is the home that is the primary training ground for the next generation. And, and that's why we work so hard at this here. We, we plead with parents to, to get discipled. Well, I've been to this. I, get discipled. Get with somebody. Be honest and transparent with your life. Be accountable with somebody. Because life is hard and it's pulling on you. And your children are at stake here at some point, at some level. 
And so we see this as the training ground. And, and grandparents in this room, those who have raised their kid, and maybe have great-grandchildren now, you still have a tremendous role. There's nothing more powerful than a grandparent that loves the Lord and a grandchild climbs up on the lap of that child and maybe you see them once or twice a year. But that time tells them of the love of Christ. You don't know what God does with that stuff. So love for God does not solely fall on the fear of the church. I think one of the most discouraging things for pastors that happens to us is people who have left the church or mad at the church come and attack the pastors because their kid fell away. And certainly the church fails at times. We're not perfect in every way. And we work so hard to have godly qualified people dealing with your children. But how, how terrible is that? That man will not take responsibility for his own family. And, and so here, certainly the church has a great role. And, and we've said this a million times. We come alongside you. We never want to replace you. That would be way outside the biblical parameter. We come alongside you with children's programs and ministries or someone just to hold your sweet baby so you could hear the word of God for a little while. But no way do we ever replace you. And then one final thought before I get to the other side of the jealousy of God. Um, look, you young people in here, pressing towards marriage or hoping God will give you marriage or something or you're young, married, go farther than your parents did. I, moms and dads here, would you not give your right arm for your children to love Christ more than you did at their age? We'd give anything. We'd give our lives, wouldn't we? To see our children love the Lord. We have a responsibility, and that's, the church takes this seriously, but we can't replace you dads. Can't replace you. God's calling you. You single moms, we love you, and we want to help you. And you need men in your life. And that's what elders and deacons and godly men in the church can come alongside you in a respectful, uh, right way and help encourage you and, and put godly women into your life as well. Now look at verse six here as we, Dallas here, I'm not gonna get through the next one, but um, this is just too fun, isn't it? I mean, there's just so much in here. Look at verse six. But showing light, loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now notice the, the clear distinction between these two verses. The last one is about punishment and, and a jealous God and iniquity on children um, and the generations to those who hate me. And, and look, love and hate are, are understood by how we live, isn't it? You know when there's someone loves you by the way they live. Wouldn't that be true? It's sad when a woman will come to my office and say, well, I think he loves me, but there's no way to tell. Pretty sad. I've heard that too many times. But here, look at the distinction. This verse five, these people hate God. <laughs> but notice this jealous God, this, this righteous jealousy in verse six says, showing loving kindness to thousands. So not only does he... Per does this provoke him to deal with those who reject them, but it impels him to reward with loving kindness those who obey him. He's impelled to give us loving kindness. Think about the loving kindness of the Father. Women, no men could ever give you this. <laughs> we'll try, but we're gonna fall short. This is the love of God. And I've had too many ladies that have said, look, I, I can make your husband change. I, I wish I could. But you have a man in your life. His name is God and he'll love you perfectly, embrace him, hold on to him, and beg God for the change in your husband. 
He's a loving God. Look at this. Showing, displaying, granting loving kindness to thousands. See, this love is the steadfast loyalty of a covenant-keeping king to his people. Those he has divinely targeted. Pastor Brian did such a great job Sunday with uh, doctrines of election and predestination. All those people are thinking, likes to get wound up about. That's just a God who knows who are his and he loves them. Don't let those things start to separate you. He loves his people. What kind of God does not know whose are his before the foundations of the world? He's not a God. He knows whose are his. And he divinely directs his loving kindness towards. And by his great mercy and love, and we don't know how he does it, he knows us before the foundations of the world and we can't get away from him. He, his grace is irresistible to us. And he comes and he, he throws and his loving kindness and upon us. It's steadfast loving kindness. And we are a target of his grace. Notice the word to thousands. This is this surpasses generations, right? To thousands, he said to the third and fourth generation. He says to thousands. <laughs> We're thousands of generations from this time. I mean, in a sense, family after family after family. He is always drawing people to himself, and he is jealously, lovingly, righteously jealous towards his children. I love verse 6. It says, to those who love me. To those who love me. Look, a lot of us can say right now, you probably say in your heart to God, God, I wish I lived better for you, but I truly love you. I think we can say that, even as sinners, right? And save sinners, but fallen and struggling ones. I think we can say that, can't we? Lord, I truly love you. I, w- I, I want to live better for you. I want to give you my whole heart, but I really love you. And I think that's what he's identifying. And what happens, look, when you keep wrestling with a, that kind of love for God, guess what happens to you? you start keeping his commandments. Not because you have to, but because you, that's my saying, I've been saying it for years, thank you for remembering it. I love that saying. <laughs> because I finally came to that understanding as a young man, I said, I don't have to do this, I get to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm in his love. I, I'm his son. I have a perfect father now. And so I love verse six, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, you go, well, what does the New Testament say about this? Well, let me just read you a few verses. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul says it's so important that you know God. Fenced then, moving towards him, knowing him more. Paul's talking about the same Same terminology, but now seen through Jesus Christ. Then he makes this statement. So that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's the goal of the commandments. Bring you to him. Bring you him with the sacrifice of your lips. Hebrews chapter 13. I went over this with the kids. We don't bring lambs in now and turtle doves and grain offerings and new wine and all of that. We bring the sacrifice of praise with our lips and our lives. Right into the holy of holies because he ripped the veil in two and we walked right into his presence with our offering. And man, you should have heard those kids sing this week. Singing at the top of their lungs of the glory of Christ bringing that fruit of that sacrifice to the Lord. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20 through 21, and we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding. Ooh, that's powerful. We know that Jesus came. Most of the world doesn't. 
They don't believe him to be God. They think there was a Jesus or some form of something here. We know that he came. We know he's the son of God, meaning he's fully God, but he's also come as the son of man. And he has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. This is what the Ten Commandments were trying to do for the people of Israel. Come know me so you'll obey me. I think most people don't obey God because they don't know him. You know him, you're going to want to obey him because he's beautiful. And then he says this, and we are in him who is true and is the son, Christ Jesus. This is the true God, the eternal one, little children. Then he adds this on the end of that great statement. He is a true God in eternal life. Little children, guard yourself from idols. He's talking to Christians, guard yourself from idols. What's your idol? What needs to be crushed tonight? What's trying to grab your heart? See, don't miss this. Outward worship is connected to idolatry and draws the punishment of Yahweh. Let me say that again. Outward worship. Everything's outward with us. Christian on the outside, dead on the inside. All right? Outward worship is connected to idolatry. Always has been, always will be. And it draws the punishment of Yahweh. That's what this commandment's about. If you sum this, my summation statement of this command, which I only taught on a half of a command tonight. Sorry about that. Outward worship is connected with idolatry and draws the punishment of Yahweh. Now let me give you the flip side. Inward worship that leads to obedience receives the loving kindness of Yahweh. I mean, look at that text. That's, that's just my words. That's, I'm summing up that command. You want to live outwardly and worship other things? You're going to get my punishment. Because I'm a jealous God. I'm a righteous, jealous God. You live from me, from your heart. Love me truly. Repent from sin and turn from it. Confess me as your Lord. And you'll see my loving kindness like nobody else. And I'll be jealous for you. And I'll protect you. And I'll keep the integrity. I will keep the integrity of our relationship. See, that's, that's the command. That's how we understand it as Christians in a new covenant, new church. Father, thank you for this time together. I didn't get very far today, Lord, but it's hard to when we get around your glory. We just get consumed with you, Lord. You're so beautiful. You're such a good God. We're the people that need to be fenced off from you at times, Lord. We really don't deserve a relationship with you. But yet, God, you have made a way. And the greatest fence that you gave us in our life is Jesus Christ and your word. And in him are summed up all the commands. They're all completed in him. And through love of him and worship of him and living a life that's pleasing to him, Lord, we know you greater. And we're able to battle sin. Lord, it's an easy connection here on earth for us to see godly people we know and see the result of their life. They still have troubles and there's problems and health issues but they have joy and they love you and you bless them and they know your loving kindness and they dispense that to others. 
Then there's those of us, Lord, that want to stick a leg over the fence, want to live outside of the pasture that you've designed for us. And we find ourselves with a very distorted view of you. We either abuse your grace, God, we just say, well, he'll forgive me, and we, we abuse you, Lord. Or, there, or we distort you into a mean, cold deity that we just run away from you. Lord, neither of those are the truth. The truth is that there is no one like you. And you have unveiled yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ to us. And those of us in this room or listening by the streaming or we'll see this later, we know and have tasted the goodness of you through Jesus Christ. We know that Christ died for our sins. We know that he was innocent and our sins were imputed on him and his righteousness was given to us and we now are dressed in that righteousness. Lord, that is loving kindness. There's not a person in this room deserves that. And yet you freely gave it to us. No strings attached. And that drives our obedience, Lord. It drives our love for you and our relationships and our, our relationship with government, with, with people, with the church, with our neighbors, with money, with, with everything, Lord. It, it, it starts to take over that because there's a love for you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us Help us to be honest and transparent. We pray for this church, Lord, that we would continue to exalt your son through the word of God. We encourage men in this church to love you and grow and to lead their homes. We come alongside families and in a right, proper, biblical way and encourage them and encourage their children. Lord, from this group of people, this local assembly called Riverbend Community Church, you would raise up many faithful and, and generations of them, Lord. If you withhold your return, may many generations come from this room who call you their Savior and live that way. Oh, Lord, we need this. Let us not be like Israel that got comfortable in the land and didn't teach the next generation. Lord, help us not fall into that trap. May we live for you. Thank you for such a great church to teach to. I, I thank you, Lord, that the men and women in this room love your word, Lord. They're here for that. Bless them for that, Lord. Give us a good night of rest, and may we return to all of our ministries tomorrow, wherever that may be. We're serving the Lord in whatever we do. May we do it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.